AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. We actually have a special guest this week that we're going to introduce. It's um, Alex Pinto, uh, who is the chief data scientist with uh, Needle. And he does a lot of stuff with machine learning and uh, threat intelligence and security analytics in general. So uh, welcome to the show, Alex. Why don't you introduce us to your company and what you guys do over there? Well, thanks for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so um, the work that, that I have been doing, we have been doing for maybe five years now, has been to try to alleviate a little bit the pain of actually doing security monitoring and uh, how some people call it today threat hunting, right? The words always evolve to sound more impressive than they really are. The point was really, can we use significantly uh, data science, data analytics, machine learning to help uh, with the problem of security monitoring, right? So the company uses machine learning algorithms to detect stuff in the data that you've already got. And while it's not being touted as a complete, like it'll detect everything, it can at least give you very good leads to say, these are the things that we think are worth investigating. And you'd kick that to like a tier three analyst to have them review that. We put together uh, what we call an autonomous threat hunting system, right? And the idea is that you have the system, right, which has all these uh, supervised machine learning models running on it, uh, which will specifically try to find out what's interesting in your log data as it relates to, oh, how, how rare are those things here? Are they related to known threat intelligence in any specific way, right? And getting the kinds of signals that you would get from threat hunting as in, did this match threat intelligence? Or maybe this was registered by the same person. And adding them all up to create this, this kind of a prioritized list of, okay, these are the things that look the worst Right, so maybe this is the one you should be checking up first. Right, this is the the the, the kind of the. The, the stream you should follow in your investigation. Part of the advantage is that it cuts down the amount of time that human beings have to look through the data for patterns. That's the whole point of machine learning is it's very good at finding patterns. So if you don't have to have analysts looking through this data, they could be doing other things in the meantime while these algorithms look through the data and find the things that are worth further pursuit. Cool, so it sounds like it's not a completely automated system, which I, I actually have, tend to agree with from a hunting standpoint, is that it, it brings to your light the, the most important things, the things that are most probable to be worthwhile hunt avenues. Is that right? I actually got in a quote-unquote fight with a few folks because they were all, no, threat hunting can only be done by humans. This doesn't make any sense. And I'm like, well, I guess we're not defining automation right. I mean, I'm, we should be uh, looking at how far we can go, right? How much help we can provide the, the experienced hunters because our, uh, our worst resource, the resource we have the least of, is time. And uh, there's always going to be new techniques that you, you as a human will react to. Oh my God, I never thought of that. So if you never thought of that, I'm sure your system <laughs> hasn't thought of it either. And then, you, okay, now that I understand, now I can instrument the system so that the system can actually look at uh, the data in a different way or maybe do a different pivoting that you, you were not aware before that was possible, right? And uh, we all get better. We, we, we create this good loop uh, between our knowledge and the system's knowledge. You know, both Matt and I have done a lot of threat hunting. We are security analysts by trade. 
And I would say a lot of what I've done in the past and probably a lot of other people is very threat indicator centric. And I realize, and I've discovered over time, it's a very flawed approach just to go solely by threat indicators because often you'll get lots of false positives, mm -hmm. you lose context. So I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of opportunity for machine learning to help kind of, you know, I guess probably a pun from your company and yeah. find the needle in the haystack, right? Uh, from all yeah. the, all this log data that you have, right? And the joke I tell is that, oh, it's like you had this a million tier one analysts, right? If they want to bother you with something like, oh, I want to escalate this to you, sir. I mean, at least show me your work, right? <laughs> right. right. Please tell me uh, this is like this. This is the 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 clues that I had, the the the, the things that I used to get to that decision. And then, oh, okay, I'll I'll look into this. You did a good job. Or no, you just smack them and tell them to try harder. <laughs> no, I, I really like that idea of, of being able to provide how you got to the conclusion you came to. And I know that I've tried to take a class on machine learning before, and, and unfortunately, I did not do very well in it. So I took a, a Coursera course, I think it was, on machine learning, and I made it to about week six. And I realized machine learning is a heck of a lot more math than I ever thought it was. And I'm, it's, it's good that you're saying that you, you're going to show us, the, to a degree, the insight of how you came to your conclusion, but how much of an ML expert do I need to be in order to use this? No, it was, it was, it, it's a product that's built for uh, um, monitoring teams and threat hunting teams. So it will provide you the data, the information in a, in, a, in a way that will make sense to you as a hunter. Right? You don't need to worry about the, I mean, the only real output you get from the system uh, as, a, as a machine learning quote unquote output is a few confidence numbers like, oh, I am 75% sure that this is a thing, right? And this is the, this is the associated uh, um, evidence. Uh, so one of the other questions I had was about uh, the concepts of supervised learning versus unsupervised learning and machine uh, learning type concepts and does that kind of factor into how your tool sets work? Is a lot of it based on supervised learning where I can kind of tell the machine it, it discovered something correctly here and you know, in the future, those are the kinds of things I wanted to maybe prioritize up in the list? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Just because something is an anomaly, uh, it doesn't mean that it's malicious, right? And I know malware and malware infections are rare, but that doesn't mean you should be looking for rare, you should be looking for malicious, right? Uh, a trained model will get old very quickly, right? So there's a constant need to retrain the models, making sure that they're up to date with the the most recent data that you can have a hold on, right? I think we're really good at security analysis, and then you got the data scientists who are really good at machine learning, and it's kind of like that, you gotta somewhere come in the middle with each other and meet to get that proper tooling, like it sounds like you're working on, so that the really good security analysts have some easy way to understand machine learning, because I will admit, I'm not an expert in machine learning or understanding the concepts well. But I appreciate uh, you coming on the show. My takeaway from Alex's discussion was that uh, he's trying to help kind of build a community of data scientists who maybe understand cybersecurity and how to apply machine learning to those uh, disciplines so that the cybersecurity analysts who might not understand machine learning very well and the math behind it can apply those tools. So I think that's really where the power is gonna come in. 
So we just had Hacker Summer Camp, which is uh, the unofficial name for Black Hat, B-Sides, DEF CON, the other cons yep. that are out there for that week. And a couple of us went out to DEF CON and had a blast there. Um, but AT&T was also represented there because we were helping with the, uh, the Roots mini-con, which is sort of a, a DEF CON for kids. And uh, we've got Kaz Simonski on to talk about Roots. He was one of the guys who was really instrumental in, in AT&T's involvement. So, Kaz, how's right, it going? Cool. Hey, it's going great, guys. How are you going? Doing all right. So tell us a little bit about Roots. Roots started back in uh, 2011. It was actually originally called DEF CON Kids, uh, but it's an event that was specifically designed to introduce kids to white hat security. Some of the activities at Roots include like lock picking, solder stations, capture the flag contest, technical talks, you know, and a lot of fun things for the kids. And all the kids that uh, participate in Roots, essentially it's uh, only do good, always do your best, constantly improve, innovate, think long-term, be positive, visualize it, inspire others, uh, go big, and have fun. And in general, the kids are encouraged to explore, you know, to innovate and to learn. Uh, the only rules that they really have for participation are only hack things that you own. Uh, don't hack anything that you rely on. Respect the rights of others. Know the laws and the possible risks and the consequences if you get into trouble. And find a safe playground. You know, I think it was maybe a couple of months ago we covered a story about there is a shortage in cybersecurity professionals in mm -hmm. general, and how are we going to kind of fill that void? And you know, maybe this is kind of getting in on the ground for, floor early with a bunch of kids, get them interested in cybersecurity because there's definitely you know a, a very high demand for people with that skill set. I'd say it's going to be more of a uh, side effect. Because uh, Roots, you know, while it is security focused, uh, there's still a lot of technical things that kids can get into that aren't necessarily security. But I think it's absolutely a good training ground and a good proving ground for the kids to get involved in technology and see where it's going to lead. Like you said, they had some pretty amazing stuff there. I mean, they were teaching kids lock picking, they had soldering, they had the CTF. So what did AT&T bring to the table? Over, I say, the last uh, three or four years, we've done a thing that's referred to as the uh, junkyard. Uh, which, believe it or not, has turned out to be a huge hit. And that's honestly where we just get a pile of old equipment and let the kids tear it apart. We give them hand tools and eye, uh, eye protection, of course, and supervision, but they literally sit down and just tear apart uh, cell phones, uh, old desk phones, typewriters, uh, telex machines that we had there. It's just in, in, incredible watching the uh, kids just rip into the stuff. But this year, uh, we uh, borrowed uh, some of Barb Lang's team, uh, Alex Ivanoff, Joseph Carey, and Jonathan Gonzalez-Cantero. Uh, but they put together for us a customized version of the Hacker Games and Link Buster in order to help teach the kids uh, best practice, but in a fun, competitive, game-like environment. This is my first time volunteering at Roots, and I worked at the junkyard. It was pretty cool to watch kids do this. You know, you give them a screwdriver, you make sure their goggles are on. So I tried to take opportunities, you know, when these, these kids took a breather from destroying things, to sort of point out and say, here's your memory module, here's your processor, these are resistors over here. Yeah, you know, we're pointing out components and different pieces here and there and helping to coach them uh, so that they can see what's inside and actually learn about uh, technology from the standpoint of the uh, circuit boards. So you did mention that the parents do get involved in this. Um, so what do you think the, for a parent the, the, the benefits are to bring their kids to this, this event? Well, this year we actually included some uh, literature for the parents, uh, specifically about the AT&T Aspire program 
and also the various STEM opportunities for their local schools and communities. But we made available to the parents um, information on the programs and points of contact so that if they wanted to get some more stuff going locally, that they'd have everything they need to get up and running. The other thing I would say, last year at DEF CON, um, I will mention that the Roots area, they get some special guests sometimes, and I was very envious because they had the creator of Mr. Robot, and I could not get in because I was not a kid, so I could not meet him. I was very jealous. It's not like one of those things where, you know, you have to be a, an adult to get in. You actually have to have a kid in tow if you're going to come in. Right. That's right. why they don't let us into a Chuck E. Cheese when we want to go either. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when I was a kid, I blew through three Commodore 64s by um, blowing out the SID chip. I was like, what is going on? And I contacted the Commodore and they discovered it was a real bug back then. Giving kids the opportunity to have access to tinker around with technology like this, you never know where it's gonna lead. Um, and it could make some discovery of some bug or vulnerability that nobody had accounted for yet. And even kids can find this stuff. Today's you know, young hackers may grow up to be tomorrow's security practitioners. So in terms of the most pro ports, this is the most, in terms of most of the activity, not necessarily the most sources. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't help you really understand if there's a botnet involved, but just like sheer volume of scanning uh, probes in general. So no big surprises. We see these guys on here most of the time. You got your Telnet, 23 TCP, SSH, 22 TCP, 445 TCP, which is probably related to um, WannaCry, some of those other ones trying to exploit the MS17010 vulnerability. This one's a little bit more interesting in my opinion, and we could talk about why that might be. Telnet, 23TCP, we know there's tons of IoT stuff out there, continually scanning. So that's part of that. Same thing for your 22TCP. So these are pretty much kind of static, relatively speaking. 5358TCP, this has kind of come back into the fore yep. again. And I have a slide on that one as well. well that we'll one take fell a look off at. for a while, right? It did. It's interesting, and I don't have an answer on it, but we're going to take a look at it. Maybe we'll sit, we'll sit down, buckle down, and figure out what the heck is going on with this port, because there's something going on here. When you have this much scanning, in terms of scan sources probing, that's a lot. So when you look at this, this slice here of a pie chart, these are the top 10, and then everything else. So all other ports that can be scanned of all of our data. This is all other scan data. Yep. So that's a lot when you look at it. Even, you know, 23 TCP, obviously. Basically, it's saying like one out of every three scan probes you see is going to be 23 TCP. Um, but still, there's a lot going on there. So in terms of sources, so we probably need to understand that better. So let's take a look at the 23 TCP telnet scanning. Um, a lot of these charts I pulled this year, or this time, are what I'm gonna call long-term shots of what's been going on. So this is a five-year visualization of scanning on port 23 TCP Telnet. We've been looking at the same ports for a long period of time now, and I thought taking a really long-term view would kind of help us see these really long-term trends, because we've been looking at some of these ports, like 23 TCP and 445 TCP. These have been ports that have been kind of abused for various vulnerabilities for many, many years. Port 23 Telnet, which we talk about literally every week, five years ago, was not that significant of a, of a problem. There was always people scanning on Telnet, but it wasn't really until we came onto the IoT and the devices that you could build a botnet and continue scanning with that were all vulnerable that we started to see the volume that we do today. The thing that I find really interesting is you go back here into 2012, 2013, it's hardly anything. 
hardly anybody was scanning on this port. And then somewhere around 2014, things started to pick up. And I remember back here in 2014, we were like, whoa, things are off the charts. You know, when it was up around 150,000 scan sources per hour, which is a lot. Things continue to get worse and worse and worse. This is probably the Mirai area, mm -hmm. era, I'm gonna say, or a lot of the other ones infecting IOTs where they really went off the charts or, you know, in terms of scale, got out of control. This is 450,000 scan sources per hour, which is a lot. And we're talking about per hour. So the reality is, you know, it's a lot more than that over a real course of a day. It has come down quite a bit, which is encouraging. Mm -hmm. um, I don't really have a really great explanation for that other than I know that they've kind of shifted to looking for other ports to exploit as well. But uh, it's definitely one to keep an eye on if you have devices, IoT devices, uh, DVRs, uh, home network attached storage, or lots of other things. You might not even know that Telnet is exposed on some of these devices that you might have sure. sitting on your network. You're gonna, I was gonna say take it off the network yeah. already. <laughs> take it off, figure out how to uh, block it or turn that service off unless you really need it for management. So uh, something to keep an eye on. But the next one is a long-term chart on 445 TCP, uh, which is the Microsoft uh, file sharing protocol, basically. I thought it was good to get some perspective. This is another yeah. five-year chart. And when we look at this five-year chart, way over here, I can only do five years. It's the max data I had. I wish I could have gone back maybe like three more years because mm -hmm. that would have helped us kind of see more of what was going on with Configure, yeah. right? So a lot of this is just trailing decay of Configure, a lot of this, these scan sources that we see here. And again, remember we were talking about Telnet before, which is up around 450,000 scan sources peak. This is only around 30,000. So perspective, even though, you know, WannaCry is pretty big and we're only at 35,000. Port 445 used to be, you know, Configure was king there for years and years. And you could see over time that people were slowly cycling these infected boxes out. We were getting pretty close to it not being a real big popular port anymore until the Eternal Blue vulnerability came out that WannaCry used. And once that worm hit, you know, it's back through the roof again. May 12th, around May 15th, is when the WannaCry outbreak hit. And you can see we went from kind of a decay level kind of thing going on here with this port to all of a sudden it really jumping up again. Um, so there's a lot more activity of things scanning. Yeah. And we've seen that. A lot of it is there's not only WannaCry, but there's some other families of malware that are trying to exploit that same vulnerability. And that's expected. They're going to do that for a while. So 5358 TCP. This is a really weird one. It disappeared for some time. Our mm -hmm. scanning activity basically dropped off to nothing uh, for however many months this is, probably two months or so. And it's all of a sudden resurged again, so maybe 25,000 scan sources per hour, something like that, which is pretty significant. That doesn't happen by accident. There had to be some kind of botnet or something controlling a bunch of devices to tell them to do that. There's a lot of sources when I look at them. It's a real weird mumbo jumbo mix of things. It's kind of hard to say. Uh, so what I, sometimes what I do in my security analysis, I'll take like a list of all the scan source IPs and I'll try to kind of fingerprint them in Shodan mm. and figure out, is it obvious what these types of devices are? And I wasn't getting a real good, there is some IoT in there. There's some things that don't say anything. They don't have any ports open. So it's very kind of confusing mix. I mean, it's possible that the, the scan sources are a different population that was spun up specifically to scan for 5358, not necessarily vulnerable to 5358, yes, right? Yes, entirely possible, yeah. yeah. Um, but 
a lot of times when I look at these things, if it's an IoT thing, I'm going to see like 23 TCP open, I'll see SSH open, I'll see uh, port 80 open or some web port mm -hmm. that might be used for management of that device. I didn't see a lot of that on this activity. So I'm still kind of confused what it's all about. So this is uh, FTP, port 21 TCP. And I thought it was good to get kind of a long-term perspective here as well. So this is a two-year chart. The interesting thing to me about this is that you can see kind of step-ups of scan source activity. So we've had a couple of step-ups on FTP lately, and it stayed high. And we know that there's a lot of bad actors who want to acquire FTP servers. So back here around the December 2015 timeframe, it went from, you know, pretty relative, not much scanning at all, to all of a sudden we had kind of some consistent amount of scanning. But then, again, something happened in September 2016 where it jumped up again. And this time it went up to around 3,000 or so, relatively speaking. And that's kind of been trailing a little bit upward, you can kind of see here. Mm -hmm. And uh, not a dramatic steep incline, but it's kind of trending upward when I eyeball it here. So one to keep an eye out. If you have FTP open, you should probably make sure that you only have it open if you need it open right. on your devices. Try not to leave anonymous uh, open unless you really need to. And if you are gonna leave anonymous open as a login for FTP, mm -hmm try not to allow writable because there are definitely lots of families of malware mm -hmm. and botnet guys that like to find anonymous FTP servers that they can put dump malware server. on or dump credentials on, things like There's that. There's that Monero miner that uh, drops photo.scr. Oh, yes, yeah, right. That's, that's one, one too that does that. Yep, mm -hmm. 100%. So that's a good example of that. Whether that's related, I don't know, but FTP servers are great for a bad guy. It's a really good asset for them to have as part of their um, infrastructure. So if they can compromise somebody's and use it as part of their backend infrastructure, uh, that's something that would be very advantageous to them. So something that you wanna pay attention to if you run FTP servers or you have them in your network, uh, especially if they're internet facing, that they're not getting abused. I was really happy to have two guests this week. It's something we rarely have on the show and both of them had very interesting topics to cover. I uh, always appreciate it when people make the time to come and put in their two cents and talk about the areas that they're experts in. So I think it was a pretty great show this week. I always like having new people on the show because it gives other people's types of opinions, what they're working on, uh, what their focus areas are. So I thought it was really good having both Alex and Kaz talk about what they've been doing lately because uh, it's very different than what we do on a day-to-day -day basis and what we kind of cover all the time on the show. So it's nice to have a, a fresh view. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.